seated. We take today a, a break from our series through the book of Genesis, and I invite you to the book of Psalms, Psalms 147, Psalm 147. We witnessed in our series through Genesis the death of Isaac, and we move on in chapter 37 to the life of Joseph with a missionary speaker coming and Easter coming here in a few weeks. We're going to take just a brief break from that series through Genesis and wanted to just bring something today that's a little bit shorter a little bit lighter hearted in one sense of the term and give us a little break from that and look at instead of 30 and 40 and 50 verses as we've been through the book of Genesis to just stop and look at a couple of verses here to challenge us, I hope, today. But as you've probably noticed, it was in the paper this morning, it's been mentioned throughout uh, this week, but we mark, I believe it is tomorrow, uh, six months since our nation was shocked by a terrorist attack on our east coast. America has responded with a significant show of strength. We've once again flexed our mighty military arm and patriotic zeal has been reborn. But America's mood is very different than it was when our country was last engaged in war. I don't know if you've sensed that. It's been very clear, it seems to me. September 11th, I think, showed our vulnerability in a way that we've not ever experienced our national mood seems to be much more grim and less optimistic than it was in January of 1991. To me, those earlier days will forever remain emblazoned in my mind and probably epitomized by a scene that I've talked about before, but I watched on videotape because it took place on a Sunday night and I was here on that night. But that was a videotape recording of the Super Bowl in 1991. The scene was Tampa, Florida. Tampa Stadium was filled with 74,000 people. You can imagine that number. 74,000 fans gathered to watch the New York Giants battle the Buffalo Bills in Super Bowl 25. Even the number was solid. Super Bowl 25. But there was a much larger battle going on that day, and everyone knew it. America was at war with Iraq. For weeks, television screens had transported many Americans to, it would seem, the front lines. Many of you remember those images, footage shot from fighting, fighter jets waging war over Iraq, unimpeachable witness to America's military power and strength. We watched as buildings were shown on the screen and frozen there, and then a moment later destroyed, reduced to rubble by an American bomb. The sheer power and glorious success of our military was on international display, and the American spirit soared. And it, with, it soared, I think, with an enthusiasm that we no longer know, with an enthusiasm and a spirit of bravado that far exceeded anything that we witness today. There was no grim spirit at all in that stadium, which I think, in a sense, kind of brought together our thoughts at that time as a nation. There was no grim spirit, no underlying anxiety back then. Small American flags were made available to each, to each fan as they entered the stadium. There was not a hint of fear witnessed anywhere in Tampa that night. 
And on that January evening, Whitney Houston stepped up to a microphone to sing our national anthem. And this time, it was not ritual. And did she ever sing? She sang the old anthem with passion and energy and volume. Unlike so many such performances, she seemed to sense that this was not about her. That was a rare event in itself. She neared the last lines of what was a dramatic performance. Perspiration glistening off of her face. She raised two triumphant fists to the sky and 74,000 flag-waving fans stood to their feet and thundered in ecstatic response. And as their voices rocked the foundations of that stadium, just at that moment, timed perfectly, in perfect sequence, four fighter jets streaked in formation over the stadium, adding a reverberating exclamation point to what was a most impressive display of might. Think about that. If we can put it together and if you can feel it, if there's any way that I can bring words together to allow that, to just feel that scene in that setting. It was a different day than today. It's a different world than we're in today. But in that moment of time, centered in that stadium, modern gladiators assembled for war around a field, on a field, surrounded by the deafening roar of patriotic fans, intoxicated with the near indestructible might of their national army, inflamed by the ear-splitting thunder of mighty jets, and totally secure in the most powerful nation on earth. It was, in anyone's estimation, a most impressive display of power and glory. But I'd like us to think for a moment and ask the question, how did God see all of that? Words fail me to describe the sense of strength and enthusiasm that was there in that moment, that was even visible on the screen, let alone being in that stadium. And we could be very quickly impressed with such a scene, but how did God see it? How did He see it as He looked down upon that scene? I think it might be appropriate for us to be impressed to a certain degree by the might of a powerful army and nation. But how does God interpret it all? How does He see it? What does it mean to Him? Two verses here in Psalm 147 answer these questions and will prove, I think, very challenging to God's people. And these are verses we need to hear, even as we maybe have a very different sense of the power of our nation, of what has taken place over these last, in these last six months. But there's an answer here for us from the Word of God, challenging to us. In the broader context, if we took the time to read Psalm 147, this psalm, I think, is a call to God's people to praise and extol Him. It starts out there in the first verse, Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise Him. And then the psalmist encourages this response as he draws out the wonders of God, as they are sounded. And in this context, I'd like us to come to verses 10 and 11 where the psalmist reveals to us the pleasure of God. What is it that impresses God? What is it that brings delight to His heart? How does He respond to the might of a nation and to human power? What pleases the heart of Almighty God? 
Verse 10, negatively, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of man. Positively, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. I'd like to descend into those verses for a few moments with you and for us to get a sense of what God is revealing here to us in our time and in our, in our day. I would be very doubtful that any last one of us saw a horse this morning. Probably most of us have not seen a horse for some time. This is a very different world. But let's take ourselves back into that world and as we move and bring it to our world, we realize certainly that horses are very powerful beings, very powerful creation. We take a hayride once in a while as a church, and I don't know that we think about it very much, but there on that rack, very large rack that probably none of us could pull by ourselves, there are seated 30, 40, sometimes maybe 50 of us sitting on that rack and two horses pull the church people that are there that night around without any real complaint. They pull us up the hill, if you can imagine that strength and that power, just two horses. They're a powerful creature. And we might be impressed with the strength of a horse, but what does a single horse really mean to us as Americans who live in a culture teeming with automobiles, each of which boasts the power of many horses? We know the power of the atomic bomb. People in this day did not understand these things. But horses in ancient Israel were not so marginalized as in our day. In that day, the horse was the premier military weapon and thus served to define the power of a nation. We looked through the life of Solomon here recently on Sunday nights. Do you remember what was one of the signs of his great power? It was the number of his horses. The horses in those various cities that were trained for battle and kept on reserve for that day of trouble. The Mosaic law, in fact, says to the king of Israel that he should not multiply horses. Why? Because horses were directly tied to military power and to national pride. And nations would boast in the numbers of their horses because their horses epitomized their strength. So when Solomon's horses are numbered in the book of 1 Kings, we are naturally impressed. But God says, do not multiply horses, because God is not impressed with the power of the horse. Verse 10, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse. His pleasure, the King James translates that word delight. The Hebrew lexicon describes it this way. It is the experience of emotional delight. It is to feel great favor in something. God does not get any emotional delight out of the strength of a horse. He does not feel any great favor in that. Nor, the second half of the verse, I think something of a parallelism here, nor is his delight in the legs of a man. Now that is an idiomatic expression. In one sense, you could say that the legs of man was the second greatest military asset in the ancient world. Battles were fought on horseback, but... On an even greater degree, they were fought on foot. But I think here there's something of an idiom to be understood. The legs of a man is a picture of the strength of mankind and goes beyond just his physical capacities. It speaks of all the power that man has. Even though we live in a world which has in some ways marginalized human strength, we are nonetheless still in this time so far removed from the ancient world. We are a nation 
and a culture that is infatuated with human strength. We revere beauty before age. We revere brawn before wisdom. Athletes are among our wealthiest citizens, and political debates have as much to do with how someone looks on television as with what they actually believe. We live in a day when the strong rule, and we're easily impressed then with large, powerful people and great numbers of them. But we learn here, and it is important for us just to remember, God isn't impressed with that. He gains no emotional delight in it. There's no great feeling of favor with the might of people in God's eyes. What does man's power and might mean to a God who has created the universe by the power of His Word? What does man's power mean to God who determined the boundaries of the oceans, who set the stars in their courses and knows each one of them by name? Notice verse 4 of this psalm. Verse 4, He determines the number of the stars. He calls them each by name. We can't even count them. We're quite sure, we do know that we cannot even see them, but beyond the ones that we know are there that we can't see, we don't know how many are there. We can't even count them. He sets them in orbit. He names them. Verse 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Our understanding has great limitations. God has none. Verse 8, Verse 8, He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. With all of man's strength and power and wisdom, we cannot make it rain. We cannot bring a drought to end anywhere that we choose and as we would choose, but God can. Verse 9, He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. How would such a God be impressed with the might of man? The power of a horse and the legs of a man. What does our might and glory mean to God who holds the countless atoms of the universe together by the sheer power of His will? What is the power of man in the eyes of God who knows all things, who is everywhere present, and for whom there is nothing that is impossible? We have the capacity to blow up the planet. We have the capacity to perform heart surgery to a child that has not yet been born. We have the capacity to clone animals. We can see far into space. We can plumb the depths of the ocean floors. And it becomes so easy for us in this kind of a world to become very impressed with us. With our power, with our abilities, with our knowledge. We need to stop and remember from time to time that none of this impresses God at all. This falls very, very far short. But if I could give something of a picture. We could take an individual who knows an instrument. Let's take a violin. Knows that instrument inside and out and can play before great audiences and symphonies around the world. Has tremendous skill to play this violin like other people just cannot play it even if they give their whole life to it. This person plays this violin so well. And this individual then goes and to a school one day, an elementary school, and there is a concert 
a symphony, an elementary school symphony, if there is such a thing, and there are a bunch of sixth graders with a violin playing their violin. Is that professional impressed? That professional may enjoy the thing, may be very complimentary at the end, very encouraging to those children, but that virtuoso, if that's the right word, is not impressed at all. Not impressed with what they can do because this person can play so much better and beyond and knows things about this instrument that these young people cannot even begin to fathom. Now that falls very far short, but when God looks at the great might of people and nations and armies and what we can accomplish, God is not impressed. He may commend His people. He may cheer their efforts. He may be thankful in His heart for those that do such great feats to His glory when that's the case. But God is not impressed. Now, I don't think it's evil for us to be moved by patriotic zeal necessarily. I don't think that it is wrong to be impressed with human displays of power and glory. In fact, one of the glories of the millennial kingdom will be the splendor the nations of the earth bring to Jerusalem in homage to Jesus Christ. Does God take no pleasure at all in the horse or in the powerful muscles of a strong man? I think Job chapter 39 would say, very, say something very differently. In one sense, he does take pleasure in the power of a horse. In Job 39, God uses the horse to illustrate His splendor as the Creator. There's a point to this great strength of the horse. And we are, to a degree, to be impressed by it. Specifically, He draws in that passage Job's attention to the splendor of the horse in battle. God appreciates the strength of the horse. He even exalts in it. So what is His point here? How do we put the two together? I think the point is God does not delight in the power of a horse or in the strength of a man as we do. When we are impressed by human power or ability, we tend to trust in those things. We become enamored with them and we begin to idolize them. We see these displays of power and great strength and technology and the like in our world and we begin to think that God does not matter. Unlike you, says God, I do not delight in horses and human strength. What so easily impresses you does not impress me. As we draw nearer to God, as we mature in the faith, as we seek to understand His heart, we come to recognize more and more that many of the things that so easily impress us and please us do not even phase God. But is this to say that God cannot be pleased at all? That nothing on this earth can in any way, to use the word in the right sense, impress him? Is God never pleased at all? The Bible reveals that he can be impressed. That the all-powerful, most high God can take pleasure in us. And I think if you're seeking to love God with all your heart, then it will be your earnest quest to like what God likes. To be pleased by what, that which delights the heart of God. And so we must turn our ears to hear, what is it, God, that pleases you? Verse 11 says positively, the Lord delights in those who fear Him. The Lord delights in those who fear Him. As a stadium rocks with the power of 74,000 cheering fans, as muscle meets muscle on the gridiron, or to bring it to today as American bombs pummel Taliban forces in Afghanistan, 
as atomic bombs are made, whatever it is, as great discoveries are made, as powerful Washington insiders negotiate, God stands over the earth, He sees from heaven a small group of believers somewhere, humbly gathered in the fear of God for prayer and worship. And that is what impresses God. That is what pleases His heart. He smiles. The Hebrew reads, God is one being pleased in the ones fearing Him. Like a professional athlete or like a great musician watching an elementary school scrimmage or concert, God is not impressed with our displays of human power at all. But what moves God, what brings joy to His heart, is that person who fears Him. Whether weak or strong, smart or not so smart, rich or poor, beautiful or homely, God is pleased with hearts that fear Him. This fear, as we understand, is an ethical type of fear. In other words, it is a fear that leads us to act righteously. It is a faith-generated fear. By fear, it sees God, by faith rather, it sees God as the creator of the universe. And it responds with awestruck wonder. It sees God as the providential sovereign of this world. And it bows in humble obeisance. It sees God as the author of our redemption by means of the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it stands back in wonder and awe. God is impressed with those that are impressed with Him and what He has done. It is the fear this fear that believes by faith that God is the final judge and it cowers to disappoint Him. In other words, the heart that fears God sees His awesome splendor for what it really is and it is deeply and profoundly moved. When God sees that, His heart rejoices. The Lord delights in those who fear Him who put their hope in His unfailing love. Again, I think it's just a parallelism, essentially saying the same thing again, the second part of verse 11. But let's take this phrase on its own. Who hope in His unfailing love. The Hebrew word for hope may be translated to wait, to tarry with confident expectation. The lexicon says hope is not a pacifying wish of the imagination which drowns out troubles. Not that kind of hope, which is hopes, wishes. Let's just pretend that trouble's not here. It's not that kind of hope at all. Nor is it uncertain, as in the Greek concept, but rather it is the solid ground of expectation for the righteous. Hope pictures that person who longs for God and trusts Him to deliver in the future, who waits upon Him, expectantly. They put their hope in what? They put their hope in His unfailing love. This is the Hebrew word said. Pretty hard to translate, but the basic ideas of steadfast, loyal, covenant, merciful love. God is true. He's faithful. And He loves with intense passion. We put our hope in this unfailing love of God in a failing world. In a world that is mixed up and lost without Him, we put our confidence, our hope in Him. I appreciate the words of John Piper at this point in The Pleasures of God, in his book, The Pleasures of God. He notes the irony in this verse. Notice it again. 
He delights in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. He points out in this book how we normally respond to someone that we fear. If you fear someone, your hope is that someone else will come to your help, right? But the fear of God is balanced by this hope that God will love us as He has promised. So for the Christian, the one we fear is the very one we trust to help us. It might be illustrated by saying that we come to, to an ocean. We're in an ocean, in a boat. And we're going to be dropped down into that ocean. And we're told that this is how it's going to go. We're going to be given an oxygen tank that's going to last for an hour. We're going to go over one of the d- deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. And there's going to be a chain with a heavy iron ball at the end placed on our ankle and we're going to be dropped in. Which means we're going to live for an hour or until we're crushed to death by the force of the water. We're going to go down and be aware and awake while this takes place. What's in your heart as you're ready to be thrown over? I mean, I don't think you can hardly be human without saying, I'm scared. I'm fearful. Well, let's take a second scenario just to play this game for a moment longer say that we are given absolute guarantee that we're being placed in this protective bubble, impenetrable bubble, with all the oxygen we ever need. One little push or pull on the rope or push of the button and we'll be brought right back up to the ship in absolute safety. There's nothing that can go wrong. God himself decrees this to us on the boat and says you're going to descend as slowly as you want, as quickly as you want, down into the ocean in this protective bubble. How does that transform your ride? All of a sudden, that trip down into the ocean becomes a thing of wonder. I'd I'd love to scuba dive. I would love to deep sea dive, but there's always that fear factor there, isn't there? (laughs) What if? Just what if? It's a horrible place to be buried. But if you had absolute guarantee that you were completely protected and could see all that you wanted to see, wouldn't that be filled now with excitement? and with joy and with pleasure, that very same trip into that very same water. That's how I think these two ideas can be brought together. God is a God to fear. And if we are not protected in His love, it is like being dropped into the ocean with that ball around your ankle and you descending there never to rise again. It is nothing but fear to face a holy God. Our God is a consuming fire a God of judgment, and a God of anger against sin. And to face God on your own is nothing but sheer terror. But we come to hope in this one we fear because of His love, because of His said. His has said His love is like that bubble that covers us now, and what caused us such dread fear now brings to our heart great pleasure because we're circled We're covered, we're secure in the love of God. And that is what impresses God. A heart that does not ignore Him, a heart that does not fear Him in the wrong sense of the term, but a heart that fears Him in hope, covered in His love. That is what means something to God. He's not only a God of fearful wonder to His people, but the same God allows us to observe that wonder and the safety of His love. So, does God rejoice 
in the self-confidence of man? Does he take pleasure in the powerful displays of our wisdom and might? God cannot be pleased with these things. He cannot be impressed with these things because he is so far beyond and he has created it all for our pleasure. But he does take pleasure in those who know I'm weak. Those who know I'm needy. Those who do not find satisfaction in the noise and fury of human power displays, but who long for God's merciful kindness and who long for His tender compassions. As God looks down on earth, He's not impressed with brawn or beauty or human success or power. He takes pleasure in the one who thirsts for and longs for His love. Why does God find pleasure in such people? If he were a mere man, we could justly criticize him as vain and conceited. How could we commend a man who takes pleasure in people only if they see his glory and depend upon him? But God is not a man. God is God. And were God to want anything less than, our own than His own glory, He would become an idolater and He would want something less than our ultimate joy. The purpose for which we were created. He would cease then to be loving. But God is God. He's a God of unimpeachable, pure, complete love. And so His ultimate delight in, is Himself because He is the ultimate delight and glory. And he's not an idolater. And so by extension, he is unspeakably pleased when his people delight in him rather than in the power of man and his abilities. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a sermon I just need to hear from time to time in a world so filled with wonders and displays of the power of mankind. Remember a few years back now, before we had children, I took my nephew's niece to watch a 4th of July fireworks display over at uh, Valley Fair. We didn't go in, but we stayed on the outside and sat there among thousands and thousands of people as these fireworks lifted into the air. And right across the street, in competition or in conjunction, was, a, was a, a car race, an auto race, uh, that, that raceway track there, and cars are buzzing around there, and people are cheering there, and the fireworks are going up in the air on the other side of the, of the highway, and people are awed by this display. Didn't many, many people there to come to see these great displays of might and muscle and power. You know, as God looks down on a scene like that, we have to remember how he sees it, though we will see it differently. But he looks down on it and says, you cannot even begin to imagine the glories of heaven. You look at these fireworks and everybody goes, wow. You don't know what you're looking at. That is absolutely nothing. I can't even begin to find any pleasure in that as far as satisfaction goes. Wait till you see heaven. And you look at what people can do with technology to create a car and what people can do to drive them and all the noise and all the power that's there in that circle. It's nothing. It is absolutely nothing. 
God is moved by people, people who honor him. And so I think he looks down upon us and we feel sometimes as if we're lost, we're meaningless. Who are we in this great world? Remember this, God is pleased. He finds emotional satisfaction in people who humbly love him and fear him. And someday this world's going to be blown away and destroyed by the fire of God's judgment and wrath. And we will have the privilege to realize our hope and be in the presence of God and all will be put into perfect perspective. Here's what faith people do. We've been studying people of faith in the book of Genesis. Here's what faith people do. They live here as if that was the case. They live here as if God will, in fact, blow this world away. In fact, He is greater and the creator of it all. And the glories of heaven will supersede all the glories of this world. People of faith live as if that was really real. Now, do they go to fireworks display and say, this is stupid, this is stupid, man, heaven's going to be better than this. I mean, if somebody like that's sitting next to you, just shove a hot dog in their mouth, you know? It's just, no, we don't talk, it's not wrong to be impressed with the things in this world. But keep it in perspective. What mankind can accomplish, it does not interest God, does not excite God. Keep it in perspective. What God sees is your heart as you sit there and watch the fireworks or the car race or whatever it is. He sees what's in your heart and he longs to find there glory that is being displayed to him, the creator, to say that you know what this world is really all about and that you're walking in faith. The real power of this nation is not found on Capitol Hill, not in Hollywood, not at Fort Bragg or Annapolis, not on Wall Street or in any sports stadium. The real power in this nation is found in those who fear God and hope in the all-powerful King of Kings and Lord of Lords to come again, to right what is wrong, to bring justice in this world, to save those who are His own, to rescue us and to usher us into His presence and into eternal joys. That's what's real. That's what matters to the heart of God. And we need to remember it. And I think there might even be, if I could close with this, a brief application to our own existence as a church. We're like a drop in the ocean. Lost in anonymity, it might seem. And we are taking on a challenge here as a church to say we desire to spread the glory of God further, to establish ourselves that we might be a stronger, more significant beachhead from which to present the gospel and to take forward the cause of Christ. And that means to find land on earth that is made apparently of gold, at least in the minds and estimation of people who are selling it. And I guess in a sense it is gold. We look at our small assembly, we look at our insignificance, and we look at the dollar figures of land and what it means to step forward and accomplish something for God. And to do so, I trust and we trust, and it is our hope to do so without compromise, to do so in a way that is honorable to Him and to His Word and to establish a church and an assembly that honors what God wants of a church and not just what attracts a crowd. 
What we have to do, though, is step out in faith and walk remembering how God sees this world. Look at verse 2 of 147. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. His pleasure, verse 10, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their faith or put their hope in his unfailing love. That's what matters to God. That's what needs to matter to us. And we, as we walk in faith, need to step forward, trusting his hand to deliver the weak, to sustain the small, to increase our faith and our confidence in Him as we step forward into a very big and impressive world, remembering what pleases the heart of God. Take this thought with you this afternoon. I can please God. I hope I don't have to convince anybody here that it's very possible to not please Him. I'm very aware of that in my life from this week. There are things that I've thought, done, I don't think please God. Words that I've said to my family that I don't think please God. That's not hard to figure out. But it's a tremendous encouragement to know that I can please God. You can please God. You can bring joy to His heart. How do you do it? Not by being enamored with the things of this world and it, what it can provide and its power and its strength, but by being enamored with the Lord, fearing Him, and putting your hope and your confidence in Him. That pleases the heart of God. What a tremendous challenge to us. And I trust that it will find application in our hearts this week. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we respond.